0: Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace and mercy that you have given to us in Jesus Christ, and that you've given to us in this gospel that even though he is the Son of Man, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, I pray that that the beauty of the gospel would capture our affections, so that we might find ourselves wanting uh, to serve and to even suffer and sacrifice uh, to display that gospel as we, as we serve one another. Father, would you do a transforming work in us this morning through and because of your word, and may it be motivated by adoration and consideration and an overwhelming sense of your goodness to us in Christ. They give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that you are and all that you have done. Father, thank you for this foretaste of glory that we will have. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, there are all kinds of books on leadership um, about what makes a great leader. Now, as I was thinking historically, about Alexander the Great or Peter the Great, or you think of even more modern times in terms of a Napoleon or a General Patton. You think of what makes a great leader? I mean, what makes a great leader to you? As you think about leadership, what is greatness? I mean, is it, it when you read these books and there's just gobs of books now? It's ambition, it's accomplishment, it's intelligence, it's influence. I mean, what makes a great leader? To you. And and as you look at your life and you say, well, so and so has been a great leader in my life, why have they been great? You know, I I love Jesus because when you read the scriptures, uh, the scriptures always kind of invert conventional wisdom. So last week we looked at happiness not being driven by uh, things or even health or people, but by God. And by dwelling on enjoying the glory of God, that you'll actually be happy. Well, Jesus is going to kind of invert conventional wisdom on greatness. It's not that Jesus is opposed to greatness, not at all. Jesus is just going to introduce a different kind of great. It's going to me, a little different. Now, you know, we've been going through this Life Together series, and in this series we've been looking at, at really how can we form and how can we create a culture in this church that is marked by a radical love and sacrifice and service. And so instead of just going by, here are three things we need to do, we've been looking really at who is Jesus Christ and letting that be the encouragement, the impetus to moving towards a greater church culture. And I want to do that again this week. So turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 10, 35 to 45. We'll look at how Jesus is kind of defining and displaying a greatness to us that I think is absolutely remarkable. Mark ten thirty-five to 45. Reading in James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Sounds like my children. <laughs> Kidding. They're old now. I can do that. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right and to sit at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And the ten, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them and Now, just to set this in context, just previous to this passage in 35, so I think 31 to 34, Jesus for the third time has predicted his own death. And with each prediction it it became increasingly more graphic and more violent as to what he would suffer. So here we are after the third prediction, these two sons of thunder say, hey, we want you to do something for us. We want the right and the left. We want the Secretary of State, the Prime Minister, we went the key positions. Now, this following three predictions of his death, you'd think, are they just dense? I mean, are they just thick? Well, yes, they are, without a doubt. But in a way, they're not. I want to remind you of what's happened prior to our passage. Jesus has been talking about the glory. He's been talking about the kingdom he would have. You know, James and John were there on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw Christ transfigured before their eyes, and God spoke about the glory of the Son. These two were part of the disciples when Jesus, after having spoken to the uh, rich young ruler just in the previous passage, and the rich young ruler turned around because he didn't want to part with his wealth. And here's what Jesus said to the disciples. He said, truly, I say to you in the new world, this is preceding our text now. This is what James and John had heard. He says, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're thinking, hey, great, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to get these 12 thrones. We just want the right and the left. Now, don't think the other ten were somehow more magnanimous. Uh, They were indignant at these ten, probably for asking first. So you see kind of this picture of the disciples who had been with Jesus now close to three years, and they're seeing this idea of what is great leadership, its position, its power, its presence. This is why, and even in the passage prior to the rich young ruler, Remember, the kids were coming up to Jesus, and the disciples didn't want to have any parts with them. Why? Well, they couldn't advance the kingdom. What are a bunch of kids going to do for the advancement of a kingdom? And they tried to shoo them away. And Jesus, of course, said, don't hinder the kids. Let them come to me. For such do these belong the kingdom of God. So you have this idea that you can kind of understand that they were thinking we're going to get these thrones of glory. But they were thinking from a secularized, a worldly viewpoint, Well, Jesus, of course, now points to their denseness. He says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? Are you able to do it, really? Now, they quickly say, yes, we are. It's amazing how fast we can. Yes, we're able to do it. Now, they probably thought that, well, we're going to Jerusalem. That's where it's going to begin. And we may actually have to extend our lives fighting with Jesus for this kingdom. I don't think they understood. I think they probably thought maybe we'll die like the other zealots. Either way, um, Jesus corrects them. He's challenging their view of leadership by saying this cup and this baptism, which with he would undergo, is not going to be the same. Let me explain what I mean. When he speaks about this cup that he will have to drink, that's an Old Testament expression It's found both in Isaiah 51 it's found in Jeremiah. It's an expression of, of suffering wrath. In other words, when God uses it, he says, I'm going to pour out the cup. In other words, God's wrath and God's judgment will fall upon the wicked nations and the enemies of Israel. So when Jesus says, I'm going to have to drink the cup, he's saying, I'm going to have to endure the very wrath of God for sin. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to endure all that God has against sinners, but I will endure it in myself. Or the baptism with which he is baptized. The idea of baptism, you know, when you baptize a person, they're they're literally overwhelmed with water. They go underneath the water. And Jesus is saying that the sorrow and the suffering that are going to come over me are going to be unbelievable. The shame, the guilt, all the sin. So when Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, while they will drink suffering, while they will be baptized in a measure of suffering, in their identification with Jesus, nobody would undergo what Jesus goes under. Nobody will endure the wrath of God for sin of all these people. Only Jesus will experience that. Only the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David. If you think about Psalm 22, when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, while David spoke those words before, Jesus is speaking them in the fullest measure as this suffering king to serve a people in the fullest measure. So just let me stop here for a minute. I want to collect you to be with me in the sense that Jesus, exampling in his life, Servant leadership is challenging the leadership of these disciples. He's challenging our view of leadership. And and there's a couple warnings I want to give us here. Number one, uh, we have to be careful how we listen. You you know, it's funny. Some people change churches. They change preachers. they They change podcasts because the preacher may say something he doesn't like. We tend to listen to things that we want to hear. We tend to believe and like a preacher who preaches as we already believe. And I just want to remind you that that they picked up the promises of glory correctly. Jesus did say you'll receive glory. They would, but they didn't hear the promises of suffering. And we we want to be aware of that, that we as people tend to hear the things we want to hear, tend to distance ourselves from the things that we don't want to hear. And we tend to turn away when they speak in a manner that is different than us or disagrees with us. So just we want to be, that's natural man. We want to be warned of that. Secondly, we want to be warned, too, that most of us want to have the glory without the cost. You know, fundamental to the kingdom is that it's a crown of suffering that always precedes a crown of glory. Christian, you need to be aware of this, that there'll always be hardship before the glory that is promised. I mean, young, unsuspecting Christians think, well, I'm a Christian now, so things should straighten up and fly, fly right for me. And so they become either despairing or even disbelieving when things continue to go awry. And, and we want to warn them that it's through much tribulation that one enters the kingdom of God. That's why Paul says that the, that the trials he was undergoing, they're just momentary affliction, but they're achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. So remember... Suffering comes to the Christian, and the suffering precedes the glory. This is what J.C. Ryle, he was an Anglican uh, minister in Britain in the 19th century, mid-19th century. Here's what he writes. He says, There are few Christians who do not resemble James and John when they first begin the service of Christ. We are apt to expect far more present enjoyment from our religion than the gospel warrants us to expect. We are apt to forget the cross, and the tribulation, and to think only of the crown. We form an incorrect estimate of our own fortitude and power of endurance. We misjudge our own ability to stand temptation and trial. And the result of all this is that we often buy wisdom dearly, by bitter experience after many disappointments, and not a few falls. So how do you understand greatness in leadership? Do you see it coming with a cost? Do you see it coming with suffering? I mean, we have the Olympics coming up. Nobody would expect an Olympian who is preparing for the crown of victory to not undergo great suffering and pain and trial in preparing for it. So why do we? Why do we think that all the glory is going to come without any of the suffering? So it's just a warning. I I think the disciples for us are closer to us than we think they are. But Jesus corrects it. And so look with me at 42. 42. Jesus called to them. So Jesus is gathering his disciples, one more teaching, and he says, you know that those who considered rules of the Gentiles lorded over them, their great ones exercise authority over them. So there was no need to teach the disciples about the harsh, corrupt rule of the Romans. They didn't, everybody saw it, you know it. They didn't exercise care and compassion. Their leadership was very, very harsh, very, very challenging. And so Jesus wants to introduce something different. He's going to redefine greatness for us. And as the Lord of life, he gets to redefine words. And so he redefines greatness in saying this. He says, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. So he's setting a new paradigm. He's inverting greatness. And the greatness now is measured not by business acumen. It's not measured by ambition. It's not measured by accomplishments. It's measured by service. And this service I'm speaking about is a sacrificial service. In fact, the word serve is deacon, and the root word for deacon means dust. In other words, you can envision that servant scurrying and hurrying about, kicking up dust. It's just the basics of serving. That's how the kingdom measures greatness, is how well do you serve others. How interested in the needs and the weaknesses of others. That's how God will now measure greatness. That's pretty profound. Coming from a highly self-centered individual like myself, who my mother was convinced that I would need a fleet of servants when I was growing up, that this is, this is very strong inverted language here, to be serving. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. He says, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? He says, but I am the one who serves. Jesus is redefining greatness as service. And the service is profound. When you see verse 45, he grounds service in himself. He says, for even the son of man comes not to be served, but to serve. Now, let me explain this, because he's really drawing both a basis for why we serve, but he's also drawing a comparison to how we ought to serve. For even, that's a comparative term. As the Son of Man serves. Listen, when you think of the Son of Man, my mind is drawn back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel, if you remember, is having a vision. So, what I'm going to read to you was what Daniel penned about a vision that he had of glory. So, he is relating to us in this scripture what he saw and what he heard. And so, here's what he records He says, I saw in the night vision, behold, with clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, which was an expression for God, and was presented before him. And to him, that is the son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel sees this vision of a fourth kingdom that's eternal and glorious, the Son of Man riding on the clouds, which was only for God, this divine being coming before God, receiving a kingdom, and receiving all the glory so that all the peoples and all the nations would serve him. That's the Son of Man. So when Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, you're supposed to just have your head spin and think, that's unfathomable. He's the one that we're all supposed to be serving. He's the one with the eternal kingdom. He's the one before the ancient of days. He was presented before God, and God gave him all this. And we're to serve him, but no, he's come to serve us. That, that's the mind bender. I, I mean, don't let the familiarity of the gospel dull you to not hearing the weight of this that he came to serve us, the Son of Man. I mean, the infinite humility, the overwhelming condescension of the Son of Man becoming a servant to sons of men. It's profound. And then he goes on to explain what this service looks like. He says that even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, This isn't a a coordinate idea. It's a further explanation of service. To give his life. Jesus came to die. I I mean, think all the world leaders. I mean, all the great leaders of history. Has anyone ever come to die? Does it not set him apart from all leaders? Some may have died leading, but they didn't come to die. He came to die. Now, to just die is, frankly, worthless unless there's a transcendent purpose. And his is stated as he came to die and to give his life as a ransom. Now, when you think of ransom, you naturally think of money being paid to deliver somebody from some form of bondage or kidnapping. I'd rather have you think of ransom. The word was used more in the deliverance of slaves. Think more along the lines of redemption, that something is paid to retrieve someone who cannot save themselves, who cannot extricate themselves from their bondage, that payment made will deliver one from the bondage to freedom. And that's what we see here. This idea of the exodus motif, you know, the deliverance of a people. Israel couldn't save themselves, God saved them. In this case, though, in Mark 10, this redemption, this ransom is It's being paid with his life. So Jesus offers his life. This is the gospel, that Jesus gives his life to the Father. The Father, you know, we always think about redemption and how it benefits us, but think of how God received it. God was satisfied. God's perfect justice was met. God, if you will, was happy. That payment had been rendered. Sins had been justly, punished, so that we could be drawn from slavery to freedom, to worship God. This is what Paul picks up and gives greater word to in First Tim. He says, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men. So think of all the religious leaders, look at all the self-appointed messiahs, and look what it says here. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. Or in Titus 2.14, he gave himself. He laid down his life for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify him for himself a people that are eager to do what is good. So he frees us from that condemnation. Boy, that is is amazing, ransom. But notice the last part of it. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Now, this is the idea of substitution here. Not just ransom carries this idea of substitution, but the word for, it's a little Greek word. It means in place of. He died in place of many. So the idea of substitution, that that the work of salvation and deliverance was done for us by another. So Jesus puts himself in harm's way. Jesus puts himself in the position of deliverance for us. And it does draw my mind, my mind to Isaiah 53. And the reason I go to Isaiah 53 is because in in 52, 13, just at the beginning of the servant song, you have a servant will be great. The themes are here. Substitution, the salvation of many, the satisfaction of many. Listen to what Isaiah writes. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. You keep hearing that substitution language. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So that's what Jesus has done for us. He has come to us. So Jesus first challenges your view of greatness. And and then he redefines it for us as service, as a sacrificial service. Now, before we can ever be great in terms of our serving, you have to be served. You have to be among the many. In other words, have you come to a place in understanding the enslavement that you are enslaved to in terms of self and sin? Do you understand that? I mean, I mean that's fundamental to Christianity is, is getting the concept in my mind that I am enslaved to myself. I, I can't not do what I want to do. I'm bound to myself, that I need someone to come and absolutely deliver me. This is very, very hard for us. R.C. Sproul writes these words that speak to the way many of us feel. He says, there is an age-old difference between the way natural man sees, sees the problem of his relation to God, and the way the Bible sees the problem of man's relation to God. Man-centered humans are amazed that God should withhold life and joy from his creatures. Why would God ever do that? And yet the God-centered Bible is amazed that God should withhold judgment from his sinners. It's It's inverted again. So you will never serve, you can never be great in the kingdom of God until Christ serves you. Has he served you? Do you see him as the one that has delivered you from bondage to sin? Do you see him as the one who has broken you free from your bondage to yourself? I mean, just the self-idolatry that we struggle with. Seeing everything in relationship to me, perceiving every comment in relation to how it affects me, Seeing how everybody treats me, we are massively inward, and it takes Christ to make us outward. And you can't serve unless you're outward. Now, so Jesus challenges the modern view of greatness. He he redefines greatness for us, and only then does he call us to greatness. In fact, I would go so far as to say he wants you to be great. He wants you to be great, but just not great in the world's eyes of pomp and prestige and position. He wants you to be great in terms of your service. But you can't be until you know the gospel. The gospel is the means by which we're freed to be great. You cannot be great apart from the gospel. The, the gospel actually delivers us from bondage to self so that we can be free. You know, in the gospel, I'm free to sacrifice myself for others because I know that Jesus is serving me as I'm serving others. In the gospel, I can be free to unilaterally serve others, even if they don't serve me back, because God has already promised to provide for what I need. In the gospel, I can serve people that don't even appreciate me because I know that even a cup of water is seen by God. When I do it in the name of Christ in the gospel, we're free. So when you think of the gospel, the gospel does this redemptive work of drawing you in Romans six. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're now a slave to righteousness. So in the gospel, you're enabled to serve. But it's the meditating and the considering and the dwelling which gives you the motivation to serve. In fact, Charles read it in Philippians chapter two. Let me just read it again because it really is a profound text. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. That alone needs the gospel. For you to hear me read that and think you understand it. I mean, just as I said at the beginning of the sermon, take care how you listen. That is a profound line. Do nothing. From rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's it. I mean, dwelling, thinking, taking the time out of your day, turning off the TV, turning off the radio, sitting down in the morning considering this. He has delivered me by humbling himself. Folks, if you don't, if you're not motivated by the gospel, your good works simply fall into a bucket of moralism. Just the right thing to do. I'm supposed to do it. There's no glory in it. There's no worship in it. Or it falls into self-centeredness. Look at how good I am. Look at all that I've done. People appreciate me. I mean, both of those can be just, it's a horrible place from which to be motivated to do service, sacrificial service for others. But in light of the gospel, it becomes an act of worship. So number one, Jesus calls us to have our our service fueled by the gospel. But then secondly, our service is to look like the gospel. In other words, when you serve people, there is that nature of sacrifice, there is self denial. We see it in Christ. He gave his life, that your service, if it's going to look like the gospel, is going to be naturally sacrificial. In a way, it's going to be substitutionary. And I don't mean to to bring you close to Christ in that. What I mean by this, what I mean by that is this that if I serve somebody in the gospel and I'm moving towards a person who's broken and struggling, I I, by virtue of trying to serve them, I'm going to be pulled into their pain. I'm going to be involving myself in the mess of their life. And so by virtue of the ministry, there's going to be sacrifice and suffering. There's going to be demands on you. But that's the nature of a gospel service. You have to endure some degree of pain. I mean, Mothers, you know this when you raise kids and you're getting up at night. I mean, these children are being served, but they're being served at the expense that you're suffering. Now, you don't mind doing it because you love them. But that's just the point substitutionary suffering when you're suffering for people you are revealing the gospel that is a gospel service that you cannot serve people legitimately without suffering i mean the idea of well as long as it doesn't cost me anything well that's just it it doesn't display anything then it's not a gospel service and so trying to create a culture in a church where we're serving one another And getting into each other's lives, of course it's messy. Of course it's inconvenient. The timing never works out. They don't appreciate you to the degree you think they ought. But that's the point. The point is that a service that's fueled by the gospel, a service that looks like the gospel, is going to be a service that displays the gospel. And then people will understand what it means that he gave his life as a ransom for many when they see you suffering for others. Now, thankfully, we have a lot of examples in this church. You know, I think about the nursery, Christina, looking over the nursery and all the people involved. I think about um, that—that's that's service. I mean, that, that's great service. You drop your children off; you trust they're cared for, and all the folks that are working in that ministry. You know, there's a cost to it. I want you to know that these folks, and I'm speaking to these folks now that. You know, you want to be motivated by the gospel. The motivation is, well, look, the Son of Man. He didn't come to be served, he came to serve. And now I'm serving, I'm displaying what the Son of Man has done, just in a small way, I'm displaying that. I think about Mike Spann deaconing this building and taking he serves us. When the when the H V A C unit blows out, there's people they attend to it. You'll come next week and I'd say that he's working just great right now, Mike, but 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 the HVAC, the HVAC unit will be fixed. I think about Bill doing the finances. They're done, they're posted, they're right, they're correct, they're available. I mean, I think a lot about the, the folks, the ushers, Mark came up. I, had, I was going to move my car. He said, no, I'll move it for you. You make sure the doors are locked. These are just small examples. Individually, they may not seem absolutely profound, but collectively they do to me. You know, we're served very well in this church. I I want you to continue serving in that way. I I would also encourage those who are being served that you would give words of thanks to them, that you wouldn't see their service as somebody's got to hand out bulletins. They are trying to display in some small measure their willingness to get here early, to stand at the door, to display the gospel to you. And so when we thank them, I'm not just thanking them for taking the time. I'm thinking, You have helped. When Mark grabbed my keys, he said, no, you go pray. I'm going to go do this for you. It just displayed the gospel to me. It's an act of kindness. It took his time. It took his effort. He had to go to greater length and expense than I did. It just displays the gospel to me. It reminds me of how great Jesus Christ is. You know, Jesus did say in John 13, he says, New commandment I give you if you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You could put service in there and it'd be the same truth. So, so let me just encourage you, encourage you this, that you and I are bathing in a culture that would hold greatness up as power, position, prestige, money, influence, whatever. That's what the culture... Jesus has a whole different paradigm. The paradigm is service sacrificial service, displaying what the Son has done for us. Meditate on the gospel, because Jesus redefines service, and he roots it in verse 45. 45, that for, because of. This is the reason that I'm asking you to do what I'm asking you to do. And then, folks, I would just challenge you to look at your lives. Are you serving well? Men, are you serving your wives? Ladies, are you serving rightly motivated your husbands. Children, you are being served well. Are you serving others? I mean, just take a few minutes today, even in the prayer time, and consider what does my life look like in terms of greatness? How great is my life if I measure it by this sacrificial, unilateral, God-centered service to others? What does my life look like? Or is it just about me? Because if it's just about you, your life will not be great on that last day. But if you've spent yourself as the son spent himself, I think it'll be a great day. So let's pray. And I will begin and I invite you to pray with me. You can pray out loud. This is a foretaste of heaven. We're around the throne. We trust in the presence of God being among us now. So let us give words of thanks Or even words of petition to help us move from loving being served to serving. I'll begin. Father, thank you for your word. But Father, thank you for the Son who has displayed and declared this truth to us. Open our eyes to him as the Son of Man appearing before the Ancient of Days, deserving all service, serving us. the giving of his life. Wake our souls up to that glorious truth.